Well, welcome to Theology Jam, uh, another session where I'm here with my good friend Matthew Burkholder, and of course, I'm John Krokodakis, but uh, the two of us have the privilege and the honor to have a very special guest with us today for this session of the podcast. We have Dr. David Barker from Heritage College and Seminary, who is with us, and uh, David just recently released Volume 1 of his book on the Psalms, and we're going to talk and expand upon that um, much more in this conversation, and you're in for a real treat because um, um, David's been a good friend for a long time, a fellow, uh, he was my Old Testament professor, he was yours too, wasn't he, Matthew? Yeah, taught, yeah, yeah. Biblical, biblical interpretation. Yeah, I used I to walk 19. out of class and I used to always... <laughs> I was a problem for Dave when I was his student. I remember walking out of his class and I would jokingly say to him, I wish you would be a little bit more passionate about the Old Testament. <laughs> and he'd, he'd get out of here, Corkinacus, you know, and stuff like that. Because I, I used to think, I used to be just so enamored by the energy he right. would bring into a classroom. And I know yeah. you yourself experienced that. So, and, and, and David, I have to tell you, um, I didn't really understand the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. But when I left your classes, I realized I had this deep appreciation and deep love for the Old Testament. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion that we're going to have because you've contributed a huge chunk of my theological understanding. And uh, yeah, um, I really thank you for that. So welcome to the podcast. And uh, can... You know, I've given a little bit of a background. Is there things that we should be filling in? Uh, you know, how long you've been at Heritage? Because you've been there a long time. And what's your present status there? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, well, I started teaching at uh, London Baptist Bible College and Seminary. Wow. Of course, that's where you and I connected, John. Um, uh, in 1978. So do the math. <laughs> And uh, I've been there a while. You started at 12, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, you were 12, 12 years old. Yeah. Like yeah, 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 in case you're trying to figure out how old I am. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's where I got started. And Jerry Ben was the president oh. back then, and Marvin Brubaker was the dean. And we were meeting at Central Baptist Church here in London. Here in London. And uh, yeah, so that's where I got. I got started, and I've served as an Old Testament prof. I was a dean for a while. I was acting president in the transition between uh, Jerry Ben and Marvin Brubaker as presidents. Um, and then, yeah, pastored, of course, pastored Central Baptist Church along the way um, and commuted back and forth to Cambridge when uh, the school moved to Cambridge. Um, and now, of course, Central Baptist Church is Stony Creek Baptist, uh, Stony Creek Baptist Church. And by the way, it's their 95th anniversary this yeah, Sunday. Right. Yeah. 95. And, um, they've yeah. asked me to be their guest speaker, so that's kind of cool to go back. And oh, wow. So you have a that. second trip into London for... Yeah, in a wow. week. Wow. So, yeah. So, and then, uh, you know, and I've served as, uh, as again, as a prof, um, teaching not only Old Testament, but also hermeneutics. And then for a while, I was teaching pastoral studies. Um, I've tried to retire a few times, but I keep getting called back. <laughs> and uh, just recently, I finished a stint as interim uh, dean of the college, uh, filling uh, a gap that had arisen. But now, uh, as of uh, December 31st, I am no longer um, an administrator or a core faculty member there. I'm an adjunct prof. 
and they have given me the title of Professor Emeritus. Emeritus. Yes, ah, which means yes. that you're really old yeah. and waving you goodbye <laughs> as you disappear into the sunset. So that's kind of where I am right now. I, I, I heard somebody say, you know, I've been such a, uh, uh, a part of the institution that uh, they know, don't know what to do with me, so they've given me that title. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's that probably kind of the best way to describe but it. But that's yeah. probably more negative implied than the reality of the contribution that you've made over the years and it's really honoring everything that you've done because 1978 my goodness you've impacted a lot of students and you've got you've got two in this room right here who you know we've we've been involved in ministry and i know i've got almost 30 years of ministry under my belt and i still have all my notes (laughs) You're from your You've classes. probably got more notes than I've got. I think I've thrown a lot of mine away. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Um, so, it's a real, you know, and, and the Psalms has been a, a big passion of yours. Anybody that knows Dr. David Parker knows that the Psalms are a really uh, big part of who you are and what what the scriptures mean. And, and we're going to talk about storytelling in, in, in a minute, but... Um, because I think the Psalms is very much about about storytelling. In fact, all of the Bible is. But I, I listened to a podcast just recently where Eugene Peterson oh, was yeah. interviewed, okay. and I I thought of you right away because you know Eugene Peterson was talking about the the pivotal moment when the scriptures came alive for him mm-hmm. and he realized the power of the literary components mm-hmm. of the Bible mm-hmm. and it was because of the Psalms. He fell in love with the Psalms and that became his entrance point to the remainder of his academic life, pastoral life and his writing. So I thought of you right away. I thought there was a parallel yeah. um, to, to the two of you. Well, it's interesting. Uh, again, Eugene Peterson wrote that uh, little book called Answering God, Psalms as Tools for Prayer. And I make my students read it. When yeah. I, teach, uh, I teach a course in Psalms, and uh, so I make the students read it. Um, but a similar story, um, in the mid-'80s, some will remember this, um, two things collided. Uh, first was a very threatening uh, situation with my wife, Lorraine, and she had undergone some surgery uh, and um, had a staph infection had invaded her body and she hovered between life and death for about a week. And I would go up day after day, she was unconscious in a coma and the doctor was saying, I remember him saying, I know she won't die tonight, but... And I just remember that traumatic experience. I had five little children at home, and it was devastating, very difficult to deal with. But providentially, at the very same time, the dean of the school back then assigned me a course, which was a course in the Book of Psalms. Hmm. I I had never taught the Psalms before, I had taken a Psalms course in seminary, which was a bust, a horrible course. <laughs> he didn't get it, the guy that taught it. And I buried myself in all kinds, like read, first of all, read, read them. <laughs> thought that was kind of important. 
And then just started reading secondary literature as much as I could. Walter Brueggemann became a huge voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, a guy named Patrick Miller and yeah. a few others uh, became huge voices for me. And so these two things collided. Is Brueggemann the one that does orientation? Yeah. Reorient- yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he yeah. was the one who does that orientation, disorientation, reorientation, yeah. which is, in my mind, a, a genius yeah. when it comes to reading the materials, yeah. right? And so when these two things collided, uh, the ongoing illness of my wife, and by the way, she did recover, and, and uh, she struggles with the after effects of that, but she, she did recover, which we were grateful for, obviously. But I, I learned to pray. Hmm. I, I learned, well, the Psalms have become the heartbeat of my personal spirituality because of that collision. And I learned to pray. I learned to lament. And then, of course, I, you know, we learned psalms of trust, psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. But uh, they gave me a voice that I didn't know really existed in the Bible before. And uh, so, yeah, they, as, as you said about Eugene Peterson, um, they just drive everything I think about God and his work in the world and who I am and all of that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, um, after teaching it so many years, what is it about the Psalms that you think people need to understand to better embrace the value of them as scripture? Well, I'm going to go back to uh, a fourth century um, uh, church father guy by the name of Athanasius. Ah, yes. Good right. Greek good Greek guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's, got a, he's got a fairly lengthy introduction in some of the work on the Psalms. But the phrase that sticks out to me that Athanasius used was, while the rest of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. Mm. And I often use in class an arrow, right? And uh, I'll put God up high and then uh, us down below which way does the arrow go in terms of who is speaking to whom, right? So if you're reading the prophets, the arrow comes down, right? If you're reading the law, the arrow comes down. If you're reading even the epistles through the, uh, through the, through the uh, uh, apostles, the, the, the arrow comes down. It's God speaking to us. Even in the Gospels, it's the gospel writer speaking to us as the voice of God to us. Um, but the Psalms are unique in that the arrow goes up. It Which is, is probably why they're the most read book. Yeah. So the arrow goes up. It, they speak for us. Now, there's an arrow coming down. It's not, let's not forget that this is God's revelation to us. Mm-hmm. And so he is teaching us how to approach. He's giving us a theology of approach. But it is, as Philip Yancey said, it is, we're, it's an over-the-shoulder look at the prayers of the saints that have now come to us in a God-breathed book for us to use in our own prayer, worship, and, and song. And there's times that the, the, the Psalms give us the words that sometimes we can't find ourselves. Well, sometimes they give us the words that we don't think are appropriate. Mm, yeah. And I think that's even more... Right. I mean, when's the last time... You've told God to wake up. <laughs> but Psalm 44 says, yeah. wake up, O thou that sleepest. Yeah. Okay, good old King James. 
Yeah. Right? When's the last time you, you prayed that way? When's the last time you said, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, how long, how long? Yeah. And even Jesus, right? When's the last time we prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus had been praying that psalm in the synagogue from a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was less, you know, Psalm 22 is less a predictive prophecy, if it is at all, to simply Jesus using a psalm in his moment of deepest distress to pray to God in his sense of desertion and abandonment by God. So not only, not only does it give us words that maybe, you know, we can't think of or can find us better words, but they give us words that we may even think that are inappropriate and expands our horizon of what is true worship, true prayer, true song that God willingly and joyfully accepts into his throne room. Mm. I, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Like, I don't know if you've been reading about the, uh, you know, the examine, examining modern worship music, right? Um, mm-hmm. I did music, worship music, and just the lack of lament or the lack of justice or the lack of sort of those bold sort of statements that you find in the Psalms are really lacking in a lot of modern, modern lyrics. And I, I think there's, there's a lot of value in returning to the Psalms to sort of discovering that type of language where we sort of confront the world, confront ourselves and confront God and lament. And yeah. Yeah. It's just a sense that we have to somehow think that we've got to be uh, upbeat all the time when you and I know that people who walk into our congregations have come from places that are often very difficult and very broken. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've often heard the phrase, well, just leave the past week behind and just focus on God. Whoa, 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 hold, hold the phone. I, I, I don't know that that's what we're supposed to do. I think we're to bring everything into the presence of God. And so to say at the beginning of a service... Um, you know, welcome, it's good to have you here. Some of you are on top of the world and you're going to enjoy singing praises to God. Others of you that are among us are really hurting today. And you might not be able to sing some of the songs we sing. Or maybe we need to, you know, maybe read a lament psalm at that point. Read Psalm 13 or, of course, you know, Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all lament psalms. Um, which is interesting. The first five psalms, past <laughs> psalms one and two, are all lament psalms. We kind of forget about yeah. that. Um, you know, and just read that and just say, you know, you're welcome here. And you may not be able to sing the first few songs that are really kind of upbeat. And just let the music wash over you and allow yourself to get reoriented mm-hmm. towards the goodness and grace of God. But yeah, um, and I think, of course, this has been a little bit of a, a passion for me in getting the Psalms back into the church, right? I think Paul said something about sing the Psalms. <laughs> I think he said it twice, didn't he? Yeah. Spiritual Psalms. Yeah. Isn't there a reference in Colossians and Ephesians? And Ephesians, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think so. <laughs> Why? You know, and sure, we, the contemporary stuff that we sing today, and even some of the grand old hymns that we sing today, why do we think that we can do better then, now, I understand the psalms are very difficult to sing. And there's wonderfully being 
uh, some really good work on the part of people like Brian Dirksen and others who are working really hard to get psalms into some kind of contemporary form that can be used in the church. They're very difficult to sing. Some of the stuff, like the stuff that he's doing, is not really singable, but at least it can be brought into the life of church. Mike Jansen, as well, has, is doing some good work on this in his thing called the Psalms Project. So I, my passion is to get the Psalms back into the church somehow, and all of them, and hear the difference in phrasy, phrasing here, all of them. Mm-hmm. All right, now you say, why are you saying it that way? Well, I have an agenda on that one. Um, this is a funny story. Um, I was teaching a Psalms, I was teaching a little lay course in the Psalms in a church, and uh, I was dealing with Psalm 139. Hmm. And if you know Psalm 139, it's all about the nearness of God, and you know when I sit and rise, and you know my thoughts from before I even think them, you know about them, and you're near, and all this kind of stuff, and I'm beautifully created. How precious are your thoughts to me, O Lord. And then there's this insert, right? Do I not hate those who hate you? I hate them. And he goes into this massive, like, whoa, where did that come from? And uh, it seems so incongruent with the rest, you know. Then the whole psalm ends with, search me, oh God, and know my heart today, right? Mm. That kind of stuff. So, wow, where did that come from? And so when I was working my way through Psalm 139, you know, I stop, make a little pause, read it in a kind of a different tone of voice, but then talk about its place in the psalm as the psalmist exposing his heart and saying, hey, God, you know that I hate the things that you hate. And on the other side, you know that I love the things that you love. Anyhow, so it was funny. I was working away at it, and uh, then I finished the class, and the uh, musical worship director came up to me afterwards, who was a former student of mine, and um, with a sheepish grin on his, sheepish look on his face. And he said, well, uh, Dr. B., um, I've got a confession to make. I read Psalm 139 this morning in church, and I skipped those verses. And you skipped yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, 40 lashes with a wet <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Read all yeah. of them and read all of them. Right. right. So, yeah. yeah. It, it's a good point, right? And uh, I think that treats, treats people in the church with a little bit of respect, too. Exactly. And, and that's the thing that can be a little frustrating is... is if I'm reading along, I, I notice those verses are being skipped, right? And I think we need to be, I think we just need to honor the people who have joined us to worship that right. we are going to, you know, we're going to use all of scripture right. and we're going to, yeah, we're yeah. going to work through the parts that are difficult too. I've, I had a pastor friend of mine who took this seriously and, and uh, he just started this project that every Sunday he would read a song mm-hmm. and he'd read the next song. So he started the Psalm 1. And it's going to take him three years to get through 150 psalms, right? And he was just reading every psalm. Didn't matter what the service was about. Didn't matter the direction. He just took the next one and read it. Wow. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, whether he ever, ever finished that, I don't know. And I don't know what he did with Psalm 119, but because um, that would have taken up half the service. But, uh, you know, well, there you get all the voices, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you touch on something, and, and Matthew and, and Dave, you guys 
both brought it out, but I remember when I first became a Christian and started reading the Bible, and and I would at, at the time I had been through a journey. I'd I had read all this other religious material, mm-hmm. um, and I thought I'm going to go through the Bible again. And I remember thinking that what distinguished the Bible from other religious material was the authenticity that was embedded. And, you know, everything from the patriarchs, who they were, you know, all their failings to, you know, the apostles. But you got into the Psalms and you understood the authenticity and, and, and the struggles, both positive and negatively, within the same confines of, of a Psalm. And there was just something refreshing about that and real about that. And that's something that, that um, you know, you've brought out numerous times. It doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the existence that we live with uh, and what it means to be the people of God and what it means to have these struggles. So, um, as as a as a means of a, of a segue, um, one of the one of the big things that you like to communicate when it comes about through the Psalms is the whole idea of storytelling. And and as pastors, we know the the, the power of storytelling. And your book, right? This poor man called um, that you've just published and uh, volume one and we're waiting for volume two so if anybody wants a really good exposition on a number of the psalms uh, we can recommend this book and maybe we can put a link link and we'll put a link into uh the podcast etc etc but but um talk a little bit about the book and talk about the power of storytelling and and because it's written very differently, it's not. It's not like this clean academic exegesis of the psalms that you've picked. But you've taken the power of storytelling and brought life to these psalms in a in a very unique way. So talk a little yeah. bit about that. Well, um, yeah. So the, the whole thing started from um, a conference that uh, a friend of mine, who's the actually the chair of the Old Testament department down at Dallas Seminary, um, uh, guy by the name of uh, Bob Chisholm. And Bob and I were friends. We're, we were uh, classmates uh, in yeah. seminary way back in the 70s. And uh, the uh, director of Elam uh, Conference Center near Peterborough um, n- somehow knew Bob and knew me. And uh, Governor named Dave Rivers. And so he was the director of, of Elam. And he said, wow, wow why don't I get you and Bob here together for the same week and let the two of you Old Testament guys, you know, do your thing. So we did. So Bob came, and we hadn't seen each other in decades, but it was so great to see him, and we remembered each other very well, obviously. We were in the same classes and this kind of stuff. So anyhow, he did a, um, he did a bunch of storytelling on the life of David. Mm. And I did a bunch of psalms. Now, they weren't necessarily connected, but it was the stories of David in the morning, and I did a psalm at night, and we did this for a week. And, and so that prompted the whole thing, saying, I wonder if this might work into something. So then I, then I looked at a number of psalms of David that had titles that told a story, fleeing from Absalom, hiding in the cave, uh, faking his insanity with Achish, um, 
the story of uh, him uh, being, uh, his house getting surrounded by Saul's men and Michael, his wife, uh, getting him out the window, (laughs) all this kind of stuff. Well, these are in the titles, right? And I thought, okay, the titles are setting a backdrop to this song. And it was interesting to read the story in the title in Samuel and and in uh, in First Chronicles, and um, and then read the psalm in light of the story, and most of them are lament because David's in trouble, and so I thought, okay, let's put the two together. So what I did is I took the story and I I recreated or retold the story in kind of a creative way, and then connected and did an exposition of the psalm out of that story. And I guess um, while I am becoming more and more enthralled when, over decades now of, of the, the importance of the Psalms, more recently I've become more interested and enthralled, if you like, about storytelling. Hmm. And there's tremendous power in story, right? And you and I know that when we preach... When, it, when is it that people kind of look up and perk up when you're doing this exposition of a text, then all of a sudden you throw in a story, right? Th- we call them illustrations. Yeah. But we throw in a story. And why do we do that? Because people enjoy hearing a story about something or someone. And so the Bible is at least 40% story. We sometimes forget that. We get hung up on the epistles, uh, right? We think that that's always first. 40%, by the time you read Genesis and then Exodus and then the Numbers and then into the, into the, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, then you get into the New Testament, you got the Gospels, you got Acts, um, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. These are all Ruth, stories. Ruth, yes, yeah. And so the well, there's a rabbinic saying that God made people because he loves stories. And somehow story was a way that he could reveal himself and his work in the world and also point to his morality, his ethics, his holiness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, all these kinds of things. So I, I think that, number one, we find it very difficult to preach story because we're not quite sure how to do it. But then secondly, I think we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about story and how it can work. Yeah, <laughs> I know we've got, we've got we're, we're, if we're looking at each other here because I, I think we know the importance of story. And, and certainly as a, as, a, as a pastor, when you talk about people suddenly perking up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happens, um, you know, I actually, I actually uh, hired a personal coach at one time um, to evaluate um, my my presence on a platform mm-hmm. and how you know. I, I remember this person going through, well, "Don't do this, don't do this, all, all of this stuff." But then he started teaching me how I knew when I had lost a an audience. Which I had never been taught, but you know, we, we took homiletics in yeah. uh, seminary, but never got taught any of this stuff. He says, how would you wake them up again? How would you gain their attention? Mm-hmm. Again, there's, there's only a few ways to do it. One is 
the, the major one was story. You know, he said you can crack you can crack something. You know, to to kind of you need to be a good jokester to be able to do it. But he said the most powerful way, and he taught me all the tricks. How do you know you've lost people? And then interject with a story so always be ready with something like that which is really what you're alluding to here yeah, yeah. and now some of us remember a person by the name of Stuart mclean yeah and the vinyl cafe yeah. and we remember those stories of dave and morley and his kids and the dog and the neighbors and my wife and I, we'd go to his shows. They were held in London, yeah, yeah. right? And he, they would, we would pack the place to hear Stuart McLean sit on a stool in a dressed in cords and a kind of an old beat-up sweater and with a, with a music stand in front of him, flipping pages in a three-ring binder, reading us stories. <laughs> Nothing fancy just reading us stories. And we would sit there and thrall. And many of these stories we'd, we'd already heard on the radio, because he did it on the radio, right? And we'd sit there, and then we'd listen, and then we'd clap enthusiastically when, we, when he... Um, so a friend of mine and one of my colleagues at the school, uh, uh, Marianne Vanderboom, who uh, has really helped me see a lot of this going on, um, she's now one of our profs at the school, but when she was a student, I was waxing eloquent on story or something like that, I can't remember. But anyhow, she put together a blog. And um, I just like, I've got it in my book. And just like, can, I, can I read a bit of it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, she, um, my colleague, Van, uh, Marianne Vanderboom, wrote an insightful blog that captures the heart and beauty of McLean's stories. Um, but she also points us to the place story has in the sacred scripture and in our lives. And I, I've actually written out the whole thing. Uh, she writes, for the last uh, seven years, I've driven to the barn pretty much every Saturday morning between 9 and 10 in the morning. And for the last seven years, as often as I could, I listened as much as I could to Stuart McLean's The Vinyl Cafe. I'm late to The Vinyl Cafe. It apparently has been running for two decades. I've grinned and laughed and thought and even shed tears with Dave and Morley and the gang. I've lingered in the car to ensure I heard the end of the stories. And when I heard the words, I'm Stuart McLean, so long for now, I would turn off the ignition, sigh, wipe tears, laugh again, and get out of the car. <laughs> uh, this past Saturday, I missed Stuart. Uh, and she talks about the fact that um, he was not doing well, uh, and in fact, um, he passed away on February 15th, 2017. Mm-hmm. I've often marveled at the genius that is Stuart McLean. He tells simple stories, stories about ordinary folk, absurd folk, in a simple way. He read his manuscript straight up, no extemporaneous speaking, no stand-up comedy, just a well-written story, read well, and people flock to listen. I wonder sometimes if we have a bit of a snobbish attitude towards stories. We adults listen to propositions and lectures and sermons and speeches and TED Talks, but stories, stories are for children. And yet, here was a guy who read stories in halls around the country and people bought tickets to hear him and they tuned in to listen to him on the air. Nothing high tech, no uh, computer generated imagery, no special effects, no three immersive large screen glitz, just a voice, a quiet, wry, raspy voice. And we listened, cried, laughed, became friends. God knew, that's the beauty of story. It disarms the hearer. It draws him in and gets him invested when it turns and prods and convicts. God knew that, God knew that. I think that's why so much of scripture is written as story. Oh, sure, there are laws and psalms and letters and sermons, but underlying all of them 
is story. And then she says, think about how many Psalms are embedded in, in story. Yeah. All right. And that's where I'm going with my, with my songs and stories and picking up on the titles. So Jesus knew that. I think that's why he told so many parables. He gave instructions and warnings, but he answered with a story. The story is a way of getting in behind defenses and presupposition and forces us to look at things in new eyes. Um, so, yeah. Um, I wonder, and she, she writes, I, I'm skipping a, bit, a little bit here, but perhaps when we cast off story as something childish and silly, something from which we grow up, our theology loses its moorings and is cast adrift into post-truth. Stuart and McLean knew the power of story. And uh, they, we came to hear stories, and uh, yeah. So, so she, I think she, did, she's done a, a brilliant job in, uh, uh, you know, identifying that. Perhaps we should take a page out of his book. Perhaps we should return to story. Perhaps we should tell more stories. Perhaps we should remember that that story is theology too. And she concludes with, "Tell me the old old story of unseen, unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love." Mm. And so I have become convinced that a form of exposition is storytelling. Now, I, I was challenged once when I did one of my stories in a church. Uh, it was a story of David being anointed by Samuel as king. And I've written a story around that biblical story and I was pushed, challenged in saying, well, that's all kinds of imagination. Why didn't you just read the story in the text? And of course, reading the story in the text is perfectly fine. And absolutely, we should. In fact, I've suggested in my book that you read the biblical story as it is in the Bible first, and then read my, my kind of creative, imaginative way of reshaping the story. And um, so I, I said to him, okay, when you preach Romans 3, do you just read the text? And of course, he answers, no. I said, you read the text, of course, but then what do you do? Well, in your ex exposition of Romans 3, you interpret, you embellish, you illustrate, you take it beyond the actual text itself and you bring in application, you bring in implication, you, you, you work your way around, around the edges of the text and you bring creative, dynamic, expository preaching to that text. And effectively, that's all I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm telling the story in an expository way trying to cast a light on the story so that people will understand the intent of that story. And I'm rooted in three questions. And the questions are, from this story, and I'm going to say, from anywhere that we are in Scripture, we ask three questions. Who is God? In other words, who is the God that is being revealed here? Who are we as the people of God? as in the Old Testament, Israel, New Testament church. And the third question is, what is the world? How is the world 
either a good thing, a bad thing. Maybe he's talking about the created world. Maybe he's talking about the world as arrayed against the kingdom of God. But in my view, the Bible answers only those three questions. Now, there's dozens of questions under each one of those. And so when I was kind of recrafting the story and rewriting in my own, what I would consider an expository way, I was constantly looking for those three questions. What am I learning about God here and how can I tell the story in such a way that picks that up? What am I learning about the world? What am I learning about ourselves as the people of God? Mm. So I just think that we can do a lot more if we understand story. It engages, it engages the, the mind and the emotions, the heart, the, uh, the, it's, it has an aesthetic value for us, but it also does really good theology and it's a form to do exposition that I don't think that we know well enough how to do. Well, okay. Um, I just got a thousand questions out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, that raises, raises a, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I, I, I grew up con- consumed by music, okay? And I, when, it, when it comes to storytelling, I see it very similar to music. You know, you talk about how it can be disarming. It can break down barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can, it can make a point where just the statement alone can't penetrate, right? Music has the way of breaking those things. So does good story. And, and, and I see them writing, being in parallel very much. And if you have a service that has music intertwined with good story, and that, that can be a very powerful demonstration of the gospel, in in the gospel and you know, theology and, th- and, th- and yeah and, and again I'm back to those three questions I if if we're constantly thinking in those three categories what are we learning here about God because the Bible is the self revelation of God what are we learning about ourselves as the people of God as we interact with that God and what are we learning about the world and that's inevitably what's out there you know when David is fleeing from Saul or being attacked by the Philistines that's there's always kind of those, you can almost see it as a, as a, as a triangle, right? You've got God at the, at the peak, and then you've got uh, David, and, or, or you've got uh, the, the child of God, and then the world at the two edges of the triangle. And those, there's arrows interacting with each of those, yeah. right? Revolving yeah. around the central revelation of God. Yeah. So to me, as long as we're asking those questions as we do the music, as we do the storytelling, as we exposit Romans 3, we are doing what's supposed to be done in the biblical text. Well, you know, you talked about being um, a challenge when you did a narrative sermon. Like, we were taught homiletics. I remember the one time I did a narrative sermon, and I... I'm lucky I got out of the church. Like, seriously, I could not believe the criticism I got. That's not real, but, you know, um, and I've never been able to go back to a narrative sermon just because of, and it's the worst criticism I ever in almost 30 years of pastoral ministry because I did it that one time. And, and um, I don't know if you saw the most recent, or not the most, but a recent article by Gospel Coalition criticizing the chosen yeah hmm. and it would criticize the chosen because it, it took away our imagination to see the story of scripture because now we have an image of jesus we have an image of the, the apostles and it's absolutely destroyed the value of the text like 
Well, why, why are we limited to that particular movie? It hasn't destroyed anything. That, yeah. In my view, that's their creative way of dealing with it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. But I've still got my own way of, as long yeah. as I'm still a creative person, I can still think through things yeah. differently than the way The Chosen did it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I, oh, anyhow, <laughs> I, I, I would not be uh, prone to that same criticism, I don't think. I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I've yeah. never seen that, that, the movie, but... Uh, I think that allowing us to engage in that creativity can allow stuff to come true, come come to life in new and fresh ways. But again, I'm I'm repeating myself here. But we need to stay rooted in those three questions as we're crafting and creating our imaginary and and what I would call imaginary imaginary expository uh, crafting. Uh, of our stories. Well, you add a third dimension, I'm, and Matthew knows I'm constantly about the vertical and horizontal dimension of Scripture. Those two are very, very important. But but story does contribute to that. And and you know what what would you say to you know you've you've touched on this a few times, but there's a tendency culturally to think that story embellishes and goes beyond theology. Mm-hmm. And I, I struggle with that. Like, how do, we, how do we stay faithful theologically and yet create the story with meaning? Right. And uh, to me, it's back to those three questions. Yeah, yeah. And I think as long as those three questions are, are rooted vigorously in our minds, I don't think we'll stray far. Let's put it this way. I don't think we'll stray any further than if we're doing an exposition of Romans 3. Okay. All right. That's, like, that's a fair point. And it, it's, it's interesting as we're talking because it's like on the one hand, we've identified story is this universal aspect of like it's just universal right and we've identified it you know in the beginning this is the is how the bible opens right yeah, it, starts, it starts it starts with, starts a, with story. a story exactly and yet we we don't a lot of pastors don't like narrative you got pushback when you use yeah. narrative is it the is it is it the imagination? Is it just the fear? Oh, I that, could have like, done it really badly. <laughs> no, but you know, <laughs> no, yeah, like, you, know, you, you, you identified that, imagination, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so what is it? What is it that we are so afraid of? Because for me, I, I love story, love narrative. Mm-hmm. The Bible to me is so naturally narrative. Is it well, is it our idea of truth? Like, like, just is it our idea that is it the ambiguity? Is it the open ended nature of some of the stories? You know, that's that's sort of where I'm. Those are sort of my questions, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. My, my friend Bob Chisholm uh, wrote the uh, foreword uh, to the book, and he writes this. Um, uh, what's he say? Yeah. Dave's strategy in this book is brilliant and superbly executed. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, that. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave's approach resonates with me. Every Wednesday night, my grandsons, age six and four, stay overnight with my wife, Deb, and me. Before bed, I tell them a Bible story frequently, frequently taken from the accounts of David and his mighty men. I use the same techniques Dave employs and watch with delight as they experience the wonder of God's work in history as if they are there in that long ago time and place. Why shouldn't we adults experience that same kind of wonder as we engage the biblical stories? I mean, we don't just read the Bible to right. our kids. Yeah. We tell the stories in language that the kids can understand, right? And I think that what I've done here is done the same kind of thing, but with a pretty intense theological intent being driven as, like, you know, when I... For example, I, I tell the story of David being anointed by Samuel, and the pivot of that story is 
humankind, people, look on the outward appearance. God looks God on, looks the, on heart. the heart. That's the pivot in that story. All right? So I told the story in such a way to make sure that that line was the center focus of everything that I told in that story. So when you came away, you were able to say, okay, I know what the author of Samuel, uh, of that text in Samuel was about when he told that story about David being anointed by by, uh, by okay, allevi- alleviate some of my anxiety. I'm, you know, I, I do my sermons on a Wednesday, okay? And, and then I memorize them Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so ready for Sunday. So I, I work on them Wednesday. Um, the story adds another dimension to uh, your sermon. It's, it's another piece that you have to add and it's the and if you're not necessarily really creative if you're not necessarily got a good imagination now I don't think I'm guilty of that okay but there is a process where you do the exegesis and all that kind of stuff and I'm just being really challenged that I shouldn't stop there yeah that my the work has just started mm-hmm. that I'm missing a critical piece that's going to make it resonate better than just an outline mm-hmm. of the text. So what do you do? Yeah, so what do you do? So what, but I really appreciate those, that, those three elements, yeah. that the story should embrace those three. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, you've done a really good job of creating the story out of the text itself. I think that's what's really been helpful for me. Like, it, we don't have to pull something out of, out of you know, where, wherever, you know, a newspaper article or something, that we can create the story built on the, the bones of the yes. text itself. Right. And, and you do spend, you, you work on the bones of the text. And you know, I translate it, I translate, I work in the Hebrew text and I translate it. I work hard at those three questions and then craft the story. And it, it's work. I mean, yeah. those stories didn't come uh, on a, uh, you know, three to four hour prep for a sermon on yeah. a Sunday. Yeah. Um, they, it, it took a little bit of time to get those stories in a way that I thought were reasonably good. I'm afraid to almost show them to people who are good storytellers because hmm. I have no training in this. Um, I remember um, uh, being terrified that Carolyn Weber would read them. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, hi, hi, Carolyn. I know you listen yeah. to this sometimes. And I, welcome. I, just, yeah. I, was, I was terrified to show them to her, read them to her, because she's a master at this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but then uh, I did send her uh, the second volume, and uh, she wrote back a, a copy of my, own, my draft of the second volume. And she wrote back a very complimentary commendation to that second volume. Whew. Okay, yeah, so yeah. I, I passed the, yeah, yeah. the smell test with her. Yeah, yeah a, a compliment from Carolyn oh. is, is, yes, yeah, yeah. real real blessing, sure, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it's really interesting. There's a, this is a bit of a change of direction, but I remember uh, um, a pastor friend of mine, Bob Parks, who was on staff with when I pastored a little bit uh, uh, on staff at, at Benton in Kitchener, 
And Bob would do this great, he would, he would act out the story of Barnabas. Mm-hmm. And he would, while he's telling the story in his own words, he actually dressed up. He, he painted his face and put on a beard and put on the clothes and this kind of stuff. The whole time narrating the story of mm-hmm. Barnabas. It was spectacular. And it would just held us like glued to what he was doing as he was dramatizing this stuff, right? Well, it's the same thing. It's a creative, imaginative way of telling a biblical story of a character who was rooted in in faith and godliness. And it was, and he did a, a, I'd never heard anybody push back and say that he ought not to do that kind of thing. We were all so totally engaged in the thing that we thought it was awesome. No, I've seen him do that at Stony Creek when I, when okay, I was yeah, there. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. It's, 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 um, it's a reminder that our, when we do those things, like I remember that. Yeah. Right? Like I don't remember a lot of, like, you know, yeah. I've heard so many sermons in my life, but that's, that's one that I remember. And so it also, I think, can drive us to want to be more faithful when we are going to engage in story to make sure that they are, you know, scriptural, answering those, those types of questions. Because people... You know, I think it'd be a terrible thing if you told a story and people were like, wow, what a great story, right? right. And they walked away on a Sunday remembering a story that didn't really say anything other than right. it was interesting right. or it was funny or it was moving. Yeah. Um, is it connected to God? And I, and I would even go say, is it God in Christ, right? God revealed Absolutely. in Christ, right? And us and the world. And I think, I think this, is a, this is a brilliant way to not even just read the Psalms, but read all the whole of Bible, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And and this is a really good example and and hopefully you can move on uh, from there. Um, I I wish we had done this uh, uh, a little earlier. I I was in class yesterday teaching Christian spiritual disciplines and happened to uh, uh, be talking with the class about ways that we can um, get spiritual content, you know, beyond the Bible. And I said something about artistic expression. And the students had to ask me, what do you mean by artistic expression? Sorry, and That just made me sad inside. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, oh. I, I get the question and you, you see students nodding and it's like, do I have to actually explain this? And so I, I'm, I'm there for a minute, and it's like, you know, and thankfully a few other students. So I think what we're talking about here is this. But this is just one of those really key, important elements that, unfortunately, we are missing in the church that I think is a really powerful tool that God has intentionally given us. So I know I've been challenged about. Uh, so so Matthew, if you start hearing more stories, you hey. know you know where it came. You were you were at ground zero when, when it happened. Okay, it was there when it all started. Did you see John come in? And he's sitting on a stool and he's got a three ring binder and he's flipping pages, yeah. or he's, or in a toga, <laughs> like you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, But he's uh, he's channeling Stuart McLean. Yeah. There you go. And by the way, that's often the way I do it. If if I and I, I've done this in a number of churches and with been well received, but I will uh, kind of tell the story sitting on a stool, kind of 
you know, impersonating Stuart McLean. And I usually introduce it by saying, this is the way Stuart McLean do it, and I am no Stuart McLean. Mm. And I remember one guy came up to me afterwards and said, you're right, you're no Stuart McLean. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was well, how, how, you know, how, how many of us from our generation remember the rest of the story on the radio? Exactly, sure. You know, yeah. and, and I, I can remember many times getting in the parking lot, but I'm not getting out of that vehicle until I heard... The rest, of the, the rest story, of the story, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'll often do it by seating, by being seated, and then I'll, I'll go and stand behind kind of a podium or pulpit or whatever's there, and then do the exposition of the psalm that is connected to that story, kind of in a, with a different mode. And you get the, you get the shift, right? Just even in the way that you've done it. But uh, yeah. yeah, no. <laughs> Our, it's interesting. The students would say, "What do you mean by that?" Well, uh, do you remember singing some songs in chapel? Hmm. Uh, those, whether we believe it or not, are artistic expressions of our faith, mm-hmm. hopefully rooted in good theology, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're engaged in it already. They don't really know it. Hmm. Wow. So um, as, as I guess as we close this out, like I, I don't want to leave short anything that you want to you wanna say. Um, is there anything that you want to kind of conclude with? that you think people uh, need to hear again or um, need to be reminded of? Well, I, I, I guess I'm just going to land back on, on the two major things that we've talked about today. Um, let's get back into reading the Psalms, recognizing what they are. They speak for us. Uh, while they do speak to us, they do speak for us. They give us a voice. The single largest category of Psalms in the book of Psalms is lament, not praise, not trust, not thanksgiving. And so that voice needs to be brought back into the church. It's very difficult, but those voices need to be there. And we talked about Brueggemann earlier, um, or, you know, the orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And I often ask the students, um, you know, when we gather for Sunday, on that cycle, going from orientation, disorientation, reorientation, back to new orientation, right, kind of draws it in a circle, I'll ask the students, where are the people of God as you gather on Sunday? Are they at orientation? Are they at disorientation? Are they at reorientation? And it's interesting as we talk about it, and we talked about that we would talk about the fact that really the place where the church is as we gather Sunday by Sunday is at that moment of reorientation. Yeah. And that we're bringing people from a place of disorientation, a week that's been tough, we bring them through reorientation, but what's important about reorientation is that it takes disorientation seriously. It goes back into yeah. the disorientation, takes it through, and then brings it up into a new orientation. So I just, I just think that we need to be a little bit more serious about that whole aspect. In terms of storytelling, again, over 40% of the Bible is story. First of all, I think we need to read them as story, understand what's going on there, that they are theology, and that in exposition, we have some freedom to be creative in how we retell those stories in the same way that we are being creative in doing an expository sermon, say, on Romans 3 or Ephesians 5. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I have to tell you, with almost 30 years of pastoral ministry, your explain your what you said about disorientation reorientation um, like for a Sunday morning mm-hmm. that to me is has always stuck as a model of Sunday morning and how we frame it. 
So um, that's that's wonderful. So thank you very much, David, for, for being here. Really appreciate it. And as we said, we are going to put uh, the link to the book um, in 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 the description the description yeah. of of uh, of the podcast. Uh, again, thank you for being here. This has been a really um, timely and uh, encouraging. Uh, time together with you, David. And uh, uh, again, for those of you that uh, are listening, if there's any topic that you want Matthew and I to to deal with, and uh, we are going to be dealing with uh, some of those topics in the next few weeks, um, don't forget you can uh, email us at theologyjam at gmail.com. And we're going to continue to have really powerful times of uh, getting together with people such as David in the future. So again, thank you for being here. And on behalf of myself, John Korkadakis, and uh, Matthew Burkholder, we want to say goodbye for now and see you next time. Take care.